2012, the Week in Health Law, the trusted framework podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 22nd, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law, Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who's increasingly frustrated that Harvey, his pet parakeet, stutters over the phrase black box, but is called... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder, dear listener, uh, if you've got a moment, go to iTunes and rate the show and help us spread the word. This week, we welcome Carl Coleman, a professor of law and academic director of the Division of Online Learning at Seton Hall University School of Law in New Jersey. He specializes in the legal, ethical, and public policy implications of medical treatment, research, and public health. He served as a bioethics and law advisor at the World Health Organization in Geneva, and from 2010 to 2013, Professor Coleman was a member of the Secretary's Advisory Committee on Human Research Protection. Carl, I don't know why it's taken so long, but boy, it's good to have you on the pod. Well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk today about uh, human subjects research and most specifically about uh, the common rule and even more specifically, the updated uh, common rule. Now, I'm guessing most of the people listening to this um, know what the common rule is, um, but it is a very odd kind of regulatory model, given its multi-agency nature and so on. It does seem something of a regulatory oddity. I wonder just to get everyone grounded, uh, could you talk a little bit about the history of the rule and why we have the kind of end product that we do today? Yes, I agree. It definitely is is an odd model. And, and one of the reasons is it involves so many agencies. But even more broadly than that, the, the entire approach of the common rule is really very different from how most regulations work. I and mean, usually, if you have an area that, that is in need of regulation, you think that that involves um, certain risks to the to the public. The regulation set out certain standards, and the, the goal is for the regulated entities to comply with those standards. And if they don't, there may be consequences. But it's usually left up to the regulated entities to figure out how to comply on their own. But the common rule is one of these rare situations where before doing something that's covered by the rule, the regulated entity has to affirmatively go out and ask permission. It has to get a review and approval in advance of actually acting. So it's a very stringent kind of review and and can be a very burdensome kind of review. And some of the uh, changes that have recently been made have been to address what should be the triggers for when this this review applies um, and to try to carve out situations where maybe the this cumbersome apparatus isn't really warranted. You know, I think there's been some critical work out there, particularly in the humanities and social sciences, where I think uh, Zach Schrag, or maybe it was another author who was sort of very troubled by people being required to go to IRBs just for uh, interviews or, or things like that. I'm wondering if we could start just by thinking a little bit further historically about the underlying rationale for this approach and possibly sort of a comparative perspective. Or does the U.S. sort of stand out as an outlier in terms of its protections or thereof. Okay, historically, I think that there are a number of, of uh, specific motivations, but it basically came together in the early 1970s in response to a series of, of, of events that really raised concerns about the, the oversight of research with human subjects. And you had, of course, the um, the Nazi medical experiments uh, during World War II, and that led to, you know, really shocking revelations of things that people didn't think could be possible. And following that, there were various um, rules put in place. The Nuremberg Declaration was was released. Uh, 
But in terms of a binding regulatory framework, it took several more decades. There was revelations of research being conducted at uh, the Jewish Hospital in, in, for Chronic Diseases in Brooklyn. There were some uh, examples um, publicized um, in a famous um, article by, by Beecher in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was probably the revelations about Tuskegee that, that, that really was the turning point where it, it had been made known publicly that the U.S. government had been basically supporting a study in which African-American men were deliberately denied treatment for syphilis over a period of many decades, even after it had become clear that the treatment was effective. And so that created a great shockwave. And all those things together really led to this regulatory structure where the, the sense was this is such a potentially dangerous set of activities that before anyone is going to have permission to enroll a human being as a subject in research, then certain conditions had to be satisfied and a review process has to be complied with it, make sure that the, the standards have been met. I do think the comparative aspects are interesting. This is a complex problem, I think, for all systems where human research is being undertaken. There's even a compilation that the Office for Human Research Protections at HHS has, and we'll put a link in this to the show notes. But I wondered, Carl, whether, um, you know, from your work at WHO or anything, whether uh, you'd come across any sort of standardized sort of frameworks uh, for this kind of work. I mean, I know, for example, that in the UK, the Health Research Authority, uh, their part of the NHS works through 80 sort of local research ethics committees. So a similar idea of centralized norms, but more localized, decentralized ethics committees, which I, I suppose has some a connection to what we do. I wonder whether there were any other models, different models that you'd come across. There are. I mean, I guess it, it depends on what level you're thinking of in terms of, you know, within a particular system or more globally. I mean, at the, the, the largest global level, there are a number of bodies that are involved in setting up or in trying to agree upon internationally recognized ethical principles. Uh, the problem is that there's often, there's often disagreement over key issues. So it's kind of hard to say if there's disagreement, can you say there's, there's a norm? One of the issues, for example, has been the use of placebos in, in clinical trials has generated a lot of different positions and different perspectives. So you have positions that have been taken by the World Medical Organization as part of the uh, Declaration of Helsinki. You have a group called the Council of International Organizations on Medical Sciences, which has um, very influential guidelines. And, and the, the positions aren't, you know, at sharp odds with each other, but there are some subtle differences. So sometimes it can be a little hard to identify what is really an, an international consensus in in terms of other models of systems, the, the question of centralized versus local review is, is, is a big issue in many systems. And that was one of the big issues that led to the um, changes, the recent changes in the common rule. But another um, context where this comes up um, is in, in the European Union, because there you've got even, even more of a challenge because you have separate nations um, that have their own systems for reviewing research. But at the same time, you know, if you have a study going on in multiple jurisdictions in the EU to have a completely separate process process repeated um, in different jurisdictions would be incredibly cumbersome. Um, and it not only wouldn't provide any benefit, but might actually harm uh, things in terms of providing adequate human 
and social protection. So the EU um, has been grappling with this also. They've recently, in their revised clinical trials regulation, have come up with uh, basically a two-part process where some of the issues are deemed to be kind of global, um, or, you know, um, uh, cross-cutting issues that aren't linked to any particular jurisdiction, and those will be decided at a um, harmonized level, whilst what are, what are considered more locally-based ethical issues, including things like the informed consent process, would be decided um, at a local level. So that's another model for how these things can be done. In the U.S., we don't have that division. We have either all local review or all centralized review, with some effort, perhaps, to, to deal with local context issues. So in terms of thinking about the recent past in the United States, I know there's been some drama because I've talked to lots of folks in the medical schools, uh, researchers who, you know, two or three years ago, they were watching as the uh, advance notice of proposed rulemaking turned into the NPRM, turned into, you know, the proposed rules that, uh, with respect to revising the common rule in the U.S., and I guess they were promulgated on the very last day. And I was wondering, but now I guess we're in a bit of limbo. And I'm just wondering, Carl, if you could give a sense of that recent history of what uh, the Obama administration wanted to get done, what their main goals were, what they promulgated. And then after that answer, I think we'll get into the, the present. Okay. In terms of the, the goals, there were, there were um, I guess, there were several goals behind the, the, the reform effort, but basically you could, you could look at it as um, two main objectives. One was to reduce unnecessary regulatory burden, and the other was to improve protections for human research subjects. And in some areas, they're, they're, they're really the same change could serve both of those goals. So the, the issue that um, I alluded to before about um, centralized versus local review, one of the proposals that ultimately did make it into the, the final rule was to require the use of a single IRB review for multi-site research for the locations that 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 um, are in the United States before it had been an option, and now it's going to be um, a mandate. So that was something that was thought to both reduce regulatory burdens and also improve protections for research subjects because it gives one entity greater power to insist on changes, which is is very difficult when you've got lots of different IRBs reviewing the same things. Another big emphasis of the changes had to do with the informed consent process. Process, um, concerns being raised for, for years that it's become more and more complicated and it, it's um, become really just um, a sort of a ritual of signing forms and there's very little understanding. And so there are a number of changes that were proposed, uh, many of which were adopted to uh, try to streamline the informed consent process. And then I, I guess another category of changes dealing with overall what I'd call jurisdictional issues about you know when IRB review is required and again, trying to ease unnecessary regulatory burden. So those are really the, the, the main areas, uh, the main purposes of this. And these rules were promulgated in January. Is there concern now that they may be either delayed or watered down by the Trump administration? The concern about delay, um, it, it, it was a sort of an interesting saga of lots of proposed delays. And finally, um, what ended up happening is a, is, is a six-month delay was, um, was adopted just days before the rules were scheduled to come into effect. So now they're coming into effect, uh, assuming no further delays. Most of the rules will come into effect this summer with the exception of the single IRB requirement, which is scheduled for later. So there's, it, it's hard to know if, if these delays were just, um, you know, to give more time for implementation or if there is some desire to, to relook at some of these issues. But there hasn't been any sign up till now of any real substantive concerns about about the, the, the new rule. So um, for now, I think, the, you know, the expectation is they will go into effect. Yeah, and one thing I just have to ask, just to make it a little bit more concrete here, because I've been thinking a lot about the relationship
leadership. I mean, one of the things that I was been writing about over the past couple of years is learning health, the learning healthcare system and the potential uh, merger or at least a harmonization of research and clinical functions and institutions. And I want to get into that in a little bit. But one thing that I think might also be helpful to just think about, talk about is I noticed that with Medicaid work requirements, uh, in the letter announcing those, they stated that they wanted to make sure there was rigorous evaluation of uh, Medicaid work requirements. And, you know, of course, they didn't go through any sort of human subjects research process to say, okay, well, I guess Kentucky is going to come in and they're going to put in the work requirements. We're going to study the Kentuckians and compare them, say, to the people on Medicaid in Maryland and see whether work requirements uh, help them or not. And I'm wondering, you know, is the basic idea there that they don't really need to do, they can do a project evaluation, et cetera, but research and IRB protections don't cover that because there's not a randomization and there's not an effort to develop uh, generalizable knowledge? Or I guess there's just not a randomization and that's the key thing that keeps it out from the being covered by the common rule. Is that, is that correct? Well, it's not necessarily true that there there has to be a randomized design in order for it to constitute research. The, the, the other point that you raise, the question of um, generalizability is really the more determinative point um, in terms of, of, of separating out what is research it needs to be covered, at least presumptively, by an IRB review requirement and what is not research. And and these are, these are some of the really challenging issues, some of which have been addressed by the rule changes and, and some of which have not. But in terms of policy changes, if if um, a new policy is being adopted, then that's that's not research. That's simply adopting a new policy. And so, you know, it's it, it wouldn't be that the purpose would not be to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge. A purpose would be just to, to do this. And, you know, perhaps there might be an evaluation component alongside it, but the purpose of doing it is because it has been judged that this is the appropriate thing to do. So it really is, is implemented, you know, having already gone past the stage of, of research. I'm still a little unclear exactly what's been going on and why it's been going on. Because originally it looked as though the common rule, the new modified common rule, had simply been frozen like so many other regs right at the beginning of the Trump administration. Then it looks like it's going to be unfrozen. And there were statements saying that the unfreezing, the thaw had begun. And then we get this new six-month delay, and so I wonder what the rationale behind that delay is. Is it simply to give people um, time to, to redo their local rules and so on? And then the, the related piece to that is why split off the overall rule from the multi-site piece? What, you know, I'm, I'm not clear I understand the rationales behind these delays and differential delays. The latter question can be separated about why split off the multi-site piece, because that was a decision made in, in the rule itself. That's not a recent um, delay from the, the, the Trump administration. And that was based on a judgment simply that it would, it would take more time to for institutions to readapt and uh, their processes to comply with the multi-site requirement, while the other changes didn't require as much in terms of compliance, as much time. And so, you know, that was the logic behind that. In terms of this six-month delay, I, I have to say that I, I've gotten lost in the last few months over over what the, the various origins of the various delays are. But there was a delay for a year that was initially proposed. And my understanding is that it, it got held up in the Office of Management and Budget for... Uh, presumably reasons that weren't about the substance 
of it, but it hadn't been released in time for it to take effect. And so the six-month delay was instituted as just sort of a stopgap because what had been desired, this year-long delay, never went through for what at least have been described to me as bureaucratic reasons not having to do with any desire for there not to be a delay. So we end up with this temporary six-month delay, um, but we'll see after six months if it, you know, there's an additional delay or if it goes into effect, you know, as is, except for the single IRB requirement. But it is a little mysterious what happened to that initial year-long delay. Turning to some of the other provisions in the new rule, and we touched on some of these in, in previous shows, particularly with um, with one we did with Glenn Cohen and uh, Holly Fernandez-Lynch. Um, but the, the piece that probably got the most uh, comment in the, on the blogs and uh, newspaper articles and so on before we got the final rule was the proposal with regard to the new informed consent rules. Uh, involving um, uh, biospecimens and so on. Uh, can you can you unpack that a little bit for us, what the pros and cons are and where we ended up? Yeah, that was a, a very, um, very interesting discussion. And we ended up basically pretty much where, pretty much where we started off, not not entirely. There, there have been some changes, but the dramatic changes that were proposed um, in the NPRM never came to be. But basically, the, the issue stems from the definition of a human subject. So a, a human subject is either a somebody with whom the, the researcher interacts, or it can be uh, somebody whose private identifiable information is used in research. So if you have um, private identifiable information that a researcher is, is, is using in research, that could be considered human subject research, even if the information is, is stored somewhere and the person who's the source of that information never even meets the researcher. But it has to be identifiable information. And so what that means is that if there is um, information that um, for, from which all identifiers have been removed, um, and that can either be data or it could be biospecimens from which the accompanying identified identifiable information has been stripped, then that's no longer a human subject. And so research with this de-identified data or biospecimen wouldn't be human subject research, and therefore the whole world of IRBs and, and approval and informed consent um, wouldn't apply at all. And this has been the way things have been in the U.S. Um, for, for quite a while. Um, it's, it's not that way in all other countries. In fact, in, in Europe, the distinction between identifiable and non-identifiable biospecimens isn't isn't um, quite as, 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 as firm as, as it has been in the U.S., but in the U.S., this has been the distinction. There was a proposal to change the, the system by saying that any kind of research with a biospecimen, identifiable or not, requires informed consent, so that rather than tinkering with the definition of human subject or changing the whole you know structure of the regulations it was basically a separate rule that would be imposed on top of it all saying you need to have a record of there having been consent provided at some point to the use of this biospecimen in research even if it's now de-identified and you don't know whose biospecimen it is so that was a proposal for many years as this was um, being deliberated it was sort of assumed this was the direction we were going in and there were you know a number of arguments raised on both sides and number the argument largely in favor of it was that the public really wants us. The public is concerned about their biospecimens potentially being used in research that they never would have um, accepted. And the fact that it's not identifiable doesn't really matter. As it turned out, it, at least if the the, the, the comments submitted um, in response to the notice of proposed rulemaking are a guide on um, this, this really isn't the public sentiment because most of the public was, was not um, very concerned about there being consent. And there 
or a lot of concerns that requiring consent would make it very difficult to do a lot of a lot of necessary and and really low risk research. So ultimately, this wasn't put into the final common rule. So now consent is not required if the, the identifying information has been stripped. There was, however, one change added to the common rule that that um, attempts to make it easier to do research with biospecimens that do have identifiable information by allowing people to provide what's called broad consent um, to the future research use of their identifiable biospecimens or data to say that, you know, in the future, this piece of information or this information about me can be used in any research of and then can describe a very broad category of research. And that would make it possible to to, to use even identifiable information in subsequent research without having to go back and get um, individual consent. Your uh, discussion of identification, de-identification, definitions, and so on, uh, brings to mind perhaps the uh, the greatest criticism I hear when I talk to university researchers involved uh, in this kind of work, that there doesn't appear to be any harmonization between HIPAA and the common rule, or certainly not enough. And it brings to mind that other sort of problem we have central at the moment to, to the addictions problems and so on, which is this sort of lack of harmony between the substance abuse patient records, so uh, so um, 45 CFR Part 2 and HIPAA. We seem to have just another lack of harmonization uh, here between HIPAA and the common rule. Why didn't they fix that? Um, yes, there were some earlier proposals that, w- that would have uh, uh, pursued even further harmonization that, that didn't happen. There are some aspects of the revised common rule that do incorporate HIPAA and, and try to create a little bit more harmony between the, the, the two regimes in terms of um, research that otherwise um, would not be exempt where the primary risk involves potential release of, of confidential information. One of the standards for exemption would be if the entity is covered by HIPAA, in that case, that would be sufficient and, and IRB review wouldn't be required. So there are some some areas to close the gap, but, but you know, there still are gaps that remain. So this raises some really interesting questions in terms of the nature of de-identification and particularly thinking about the comparison, say, between the role of the de-identification expert with respect to HIPAA and then, say, with respect to human subjects research. And I'm just wondering, just sort of on the ground, Carl, are you seeing researchers trying to do more to learn more about or to hire security experts or de-identification experts uh, in this field, or is there just sort of a general consensus about what de-identification consists in, and there's not too much uh, worry about the burgeoning re-identification research by computer scientists and others? I mean, I think people routinely refer to that possibility. You know, that was certainly one of the arguments behind uh, the proposal to require consent to all uses of biospecimens, even if de-identified. One of the arguments was, even if it's supposedly de-identified, you can never be certain that it really has been conclusively de-identified. So that that was an argument that was raised, um, but ultimately didn't prevail. I, I have to say, in the research community, I think this the the concern about uh, about reidentification exists, but that's not the main concern. I mean, I think the main concern is the you know the harms that would arise if this information couldn't be used freely, if um, people could essentially opt out in a way that would make it very hard to get you know large data sets 
for, for use in research. Right. And that certainly seems to be behind a lot of the policy of the Precision Medicine Project and of uh, the emphasis on health information exchanges. I am wondering, though, I mean, I certainly see with respect to data collected in the past, that concern. I wonder, though, in terms of looking forward, if there was a missed opportunity here. Uh, in Because just sort of riffing a bit on some of Jessica Roberts' work on the rise of bio rights or even, you know, President Obama's comments, I think offhandedly he said, well, biospecimen, like, that's yours, that's you. You should have some say over what, what it's used for and whatnot. I'm just wondering if we might have lost an opportunity to, you know, get more community involvement, community buy-in in these areas had we invested more effort in thinking about what would a regime of 21st century consent look like that might just involve people in that? Or, or is your sense that the potential uses are so multifarious that it would just end up being people being overwhelmed by potential consents and there's no real way to organize consents in a way that would be meaningful for the average person? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the, the, the issue, what you just said at the end about um, whether consent will be meaningful. And, and there is a bit of a tension when you try to design a consent regimen that will be not too burdensome and so it won't impede, you know, the collection of information too much. At a certain point, you've got something that's no longer meaningful and that may just create some illusion of, of, of consent that, that does more harm than than good. You know, and that was also, I think, one of the concerns about uh, some of the proposals in, that, that, that were not adopted with respect to biospecimens is that to try to facilitate the, the ease that, you know, how easy it would be to provide this consent to the future use of your biospecimens and de-identified research so that it wouldn't slow down research. There was a concern that, that basically everyone would do it and it would mean nothing and it would be worse than having an, uh, an explicit system that this is being done without consent because then at least people would know, you know, what what the rules are. Right. And I think there's also a big concern just in the privacy literature in general that who are the people most likely to exercise opt-out? It's not evenly distributed among the population. It's right, probably going right. to be the most educated, most advantaged people that would, you know, do this. Uh, or it might follow the pattern of um, anti-vaccination uh, movements. So, yeah, I, I understand those concerns. I suppose you could take the view that the very long time it's taken to come up with changes now delays you know that that actually this is very considered policy making this is how we should do policy there's no great rush so we take our time and so on a a less positive view of what we've been through would be well we just spent maybe 10 years of people's time sort of coming back to where we were before <laughs> do you think the general anti-regulatory models that we are seeing today less science being required i mean we're talking about the apa we're talking about more sort of crowdsourcing ideas ideas for FDA, uh, allowing um, corporations more say. These stakeholders seem to be elevated in the current climate. Do you think that is something that is going to strike at IRBs and the whole human uh, subjects research model here? Or do you think, in fact, we'll just stay exactly where we are for another 30 or 40 years before someone else decides to take another step? stab at this. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think you know one thing to keep in mind about the common rule in particular in terms of, of making changes to regulations is how many agencies have to be involved in that process um, because you know we're dealing with over a dozen agencies, and so a system like that is it, it, it's. It's it's not designed to be to be flexible and responsive. So I think you know what you what you mentioned about um, the number of stakeholders involved is 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 also part of it. But I think you know simply the fact that you need such widespread consensus among so many different regulatory agencies is going to be very difficult to 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 you know to make revisions on an ongoing basis. And what might be useful is to figure out some mechanism for you know ha- building in more flexibility so that you don't need an you know the kind of undertaking we just saw in the last few. years years in order to make any changes to the regulations. So we're toward the end of the podcast, Carl. And, you know, I, I really appreciate your giving us so much great background, the comparative perspective. It's just been fantastic. But I feel like we've sort of slighted your own research. Of course, uh, we, you've written or co-authored one of the, the most important uh, casebooks on human subjects research, and we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. But in terms of your recent articles, uh, drafts, etc., well, what's taking up your time now? What are you uh, thinking about research-wise? with respect to the future of human subjects research? Well, one thing I, I, I've been working on recently um, in collaboration with some people at the World Health Organization is looking at research ethics systems globally, trying to figure out how do we know if, if a good system exists? How can you measure the quality of research ethics systems in a way that, that would provide useful information to people who are using the systems and, and also just to the public at large? So we're trying to come up with a set of indicators that could be used in a, in a, in a pretty simple way to come up with ways of, of measuring progress towards meeting international standards in, in research ethics oversight or, um, you know, generally how robust a system there is. So um, so that's something I've been spending some time thinking about recently, probably more for use at, uh, outside the U.S., uh, you know, on a, on a global level. Are there a couple of bullet points that you could give health law students or those serving on IRBs or, or uh, medical uh, health? Health researchers as to sort of the the big issues to watch out for in 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 the next two three four five years. That's an interesting question in terms of IRB um, research issues. I mean, I think a lot of what what Frank um, mentioned about learning health systems, a lot of that discussion will be interesting to watch. You know, as as basically the line between research and clinical practice um, erodes um, as as all of what's going going to be done in in a healthcare system is in a sense both research and practice, how do, does um, the, the idea of what we regulate adapt to that? And they, these are some of the unanswered questions that the, the, the common rule changes didn't, didn't address. And, you know, and I guess a, a related set of issues is, is basically research on standard practices, standard of care research where you're comparing different interventions that people might otherwise be receiving, even if they weren't in the research, you know, to, to what extent are things like that, you know, should the, should the standards either for informed consent or for um, approval differ? Um, should the regulatory apparatus be, be different? So I'd say basically uh, in terms of the healthcare research, the, the, the issues that seem interesting are 
basically, you know, anything that relates to the fact that that research is becoming so much more embedded within the practice of healthcare that the the the, the distinction between the research world and the non-research world uh, may be falling away. And that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Professor Coleman for joining us. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Carl H Coleman. That was great fun to have you on the pod, Carl. Uh, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We post our show notes at tool.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank is either at HealthPI or at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.